Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, OnScript listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for tuning in. I want to say a special thank you at the beginning here to Ed Hackey, who faithfully produces this podcast as well as our new Biblical World podcast. If you haven't yet listened to that, Biblical World is a podcast that focuses on the history, archaeology, culture, and geography of the Bible. And you can look that up wherever you listen to podcasts and enjoy that one. So thanks so much, Ed, for all the time, the hours and hours that you put in. And he keeps me on track. Um, reminding me, hey, you've got this upcoming episode, make sure you send me the audio files, all that kind of stuff. So thank you so much, Ed. Thanks also to Rebecca Terhun for all your help with marketing and media. And uh, thanks to those who give to the podcast regularly. If you'd like to support OnScript and Biblical World, uh, you can go to onscript.study forward slash donate. If you don't have cash ready at hand to donate, uh, there's no shame in that. Um, you can help us out in other ways, like uh, telling your um, family members about the podcast as you sit around the grill this summer in person. But uh, if that's not a possibility, then there are other things you can do. And Brent's going to talk about some of those in this episode. So I'm very excited to have a guest on, uh, Brent Strawn's on again uh, for the third time. And he's brought some great ideas for the promotion of OnScript. It's always nice to talk with Brent, so we hope you really enjoy this episode and that you're having a great summer. Welcome back. Our guest today is Dr. Brent Strawn. He is professor of Old Testament and law, mind you, at Duke Divinity School. He taught for 18 years at Candler School of Theology at Emory University, uh, where I had him as a professor uh, before he joined the Duke faculty just a few short years ago. He's the author of several books, including The Old Testament is Dying and The Old Testament, A Concise Introduction that was just published by Rutledge last year two years ago, I guess. Um, He's also got a book due to publish in December, and it's called Honest to God Preaching, Talking Sin, Suffering, and Violence. But today we're going to be talking about Lies My Preacher Told Me, an honest look at the Old Testament, published by Westminster John Knox Press just this year. Brent, this is your third time coming on the podcast, so and you're our first guest to appear three times, so congrats and welcome. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me back. I I did want to begin by, you know, just acknowledging that that honor that you've bestowed on me. I I admit that the last time I was on my second appearance, um, did did we mention this is the third, the second the second appearance? You know, I I hope you didn't feel pressured about a third appearance because I I do feel like maybe I was angling for it a little bit. Um, but even if you did feel pressured. Hey, the honor is is still all mine. So thanks, thanks for having me. But you know, I think maybe your stats might be um, in error because I, you know, I'm I'm a super fan. I'm I'm a big on script super fan. You know this. Drew Johnson knows this. The other people know this. Everyone who's seen my office with the um, on script host bobbleheads um, that I have. Yes, the, yes, yeah. You can't the pennants and everything. yeah, the yeah. people can't see obviously because yeah. it's a podcast. But the doilies that I have. Mm-hmm the on-script doilies yeah. strewn about yeah. my office. Well, 
we know, those of us who are super fans, that actually someone has appeared on the show four times. And I'm speaking, of course, of Professor Irvine Shabladzim. And uh, I'm okay with that, though, Matt. I'm okay with that because Mm. Professor Shabladzim has been a a mentor Mm. and really inspiration for me and so many others. I mean, the clarity of his expression and thought is, I find it stunning. I mean, mean, his episode on Paul and the multiverse, I think that might have been the first one. I mean, it helped me so much when I went and saw Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse because I felt like I had a lodestar. You know, I had like a biblical center, a grounding that I could, I could appeal to. So I, I'm okay with coming in second, third, whatever to Prof. Shablatson. But other than that, I'm, I'm very happy to be beyond. But uh, I did have, you know, since we're kind of in the intro mode, I did have one, one suggestion kind of in the intro mode, if that's okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Well, again, super fan here. So I've been thinking about your wonderful suggestions about, you know, getting the Mm -hmm. word out about OnScript. I've tried Mm -hmm. many of them myself. Um, The Carrier Pigeon I tried. Carrier Pigeon never came back. I don't know if that's how it's supposed to go or not. That's how you know it's not a Carrier Pigeon, I guess. Oh, okay. Uh, That's, I wish I'd known that. Um, I've also tried the, the banner behind the plane thing. Also, you know, semi-effective until my wife, Holly, got the bill. Um, She wasn't fully happy with that. But I thought about it, you know, and I just thought, maybe we need more, Matt, bigger. And and what I'm wondering is, or I guess what I'm trying to say, Matt, is that maybe your God is too small. So here's two words, two words, Matt. Geoglyph. Geoglyph. What's a geoglyph? Well, it's really just one word, but it sounds more dramatic if you say two words. Geoglyph. (laughs) (laughs) Nazca lines. Think think that. So So I know hieroglyph. Geoglyph is these massive pictures that are on the Earth's landscape. You know, Uh, like the Nazca lines in in South America. So I've looked into it. There's still some, some... land available in Australia, South America, even even some large farms mm. in Oklahoma. So what do you think? Onscript yeah. G- I mean, all that, all that unused Amazon rainforest. Exactly. Exa- well, we, we don't want to clear any ground. We want to kind of use what's already oh, okay. there. But just think an onscript geoglyph visible from space. Why not, Matt? Why not? Mm. And then I thought, I like why that. stop with the geoglyph? Why not think about that very large array, as they call it in New Mexico? Why not beam this out? To other places like people in Beetlejuice need to know or wherever they are they need to know about lies my preacher told me so I, I just wanted to begin that well, there's a couple just a couple you know friendly amendment suggestions uh, for getting the word yeah, out. yeah I like how you think you're thinking big you're think you're not you're not boxed in by the current way of doing things you know and I, I do say this sometimes in the intro um, you know hit subscribe you know smash that subscribe button smash that like button but you know why not why not uh, push this? And it, and it fits also with Shablatsum. I can tell he's been mentoring you, getting it out into the um, universe. Yeah. and into the multiverse, perhaps. Uh, yeah, yeah, into the multiverse. Because um, this podcast or variations of it are being broadcasted right now in an infinite number of <laughs> parallel so. universes. To the great benefit of people <laughs> everywhere, or beings, maybe we should say beings everywhere. But I mean, again, why not? I mean, the quality of OnScript is, you know, remarkable. I I come for the hosts and the guests, but I, I stay for the literal biblical fire. So. <laughs> wow. Wow. What a way to start. Thanks so much, Brent. <laughs> You know, ha- having you on three times. Some guests we have on again because they're they're listener favorites, and some we're just trying to get it right. You know? <laughs> well, um, so, yeah, wait, wait. I'm not sure where I've been. <laughs> I see right, what so you, you did you right were, there, Matt Lynch. I get it. 
So, so you've, uh, you're on a roll, Brent, you've written three books recently and, and, you know, I, I feel like, um, you know, we're just having this podcast now, but you've already got another one ready to publish in December. Um, so, and then you published one last year. So I wanted to go back to the one last year, Old Testament, a concise introduction that's geared toward, that's geared more toward a scholarly audience. Is that right? Well, it's, it's, I mean, ideally it's, it's, uh, kind of a first touch book. So, uh, you know, I, I, I had the idea for that book when I first began teaching I wanted a book that would sort of cover the old Testament in one or two sittings that I could assign my students would give them a sense of the forest before the trees. And so it is designed as a textbook, but, but an introductory one. Um, and so, yeah. uh, I, I guess I meant like a scholarly, um, approach. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So it does, it overviews, uh, sort of two, uh, stories or narratives about the Bible that I go on to sort of problematize at the end because I have my own beef against uh, story, as we've talked about in the second uh, time I was on. But uh, the two stories are the stories uh, that uh, that scholars tell about the composition and origin and growth of the biblical material at hand, and then the the stories or the content that the biblical books themselves tell. And so I think it, it tries to overview both content and theory for students in, again, you know, two or three sittings. It, it grew a little bit longer than perhaps the ideal length, but uh, but two or three sittings, I think they can get through it. And it gives them a sense, again, of the forest before the trees, which I think is helpful for students uh, before they, they get into the weeds. That's great. And then you've got another book coming out in December, I believe, right? Honest to God Preaching. And, and the blurb says, or part of the blurb says, um, that you're asserting that keeping secrets can lead to a kind of sickness, which I thought was interesting. Um, this has to do with preaching. Uh, it says, Strawn uses texts from the Pentateuch and the Psalms to model honesty about sin, without which there can be no reconciliation, and honesty about suffering, without which there can be no healing. Um, and I, I maybe cut off the blurb, but probably honesty about violence as well. Yeah, that, that facilitates so in, in recovery what, is what the blurb Recovery, is. okay. So in what ways do preachers keep secrets when it comes to scripture. And, and I assume you don't mean, um, you know, all sorts of other stuff to keep secrets about, um, but particularly about the Bible. Well, I think sometimes it comes out in a, in a, in a sort of triumphalism that happens in the pulpit where we uh, sort of tend towards the best case scenario or talk about uh, our best vision of ourselves or, or of others, which we know, you know, when we look in the mirror, isn't quite right, you know, um, the kind of impression I get a lot of times when I go to church that I squint a little harder, I'm going to end up as the Apostle Paul or something like that, you know, <laughs> probably yeah, just yeah. one of those. I'm just going to guess. It's probably just one of those. Uh, so I, I think there's a bit of that. I think um, that, that that can kind of cover over secrets, a kind of triumphalism that isn't fully uh, in touch with our frailty and you know, vulnerability. I think another kind of secrets that we keep or whatever is the pressure for on us in the pulpit to not tell the truth in some ways for a whole host of reasons, uh, many of which might have to do with the culture or climate of the local church that someone serves. Uh, Will Willimon, my colleague here at Duke and uh, former bishop um, of the United Methodist Church uh, said to me, I had him read this manuscript, said to me that he he felt like there was inordinate pressure on preachers to actually lie from the pulpit. And he's had pastors say as much and admit as much to him. So um, I think I think that's kind of what I'm getting at. And I, I think that the, uh, the idea is that, that this candor that is represented in the Bible, in the Old Testament particularly, which is where I spend most of my 
uh, work in the uh, in the book, it facilitates these moves, and so that without honesty about sin, suffering, and violence, we we can't get to what we need to get to, which is reconciliation, healing, and recovery. And that and that honesty that we need to get to is actually modeled for us in in the pages of scripture in these remarkable ways. And so it can actually be, um, uh, you know, kind of script we use for our own honesty until we're able to kind of get there fully ourselves. And that honesty that Israel models for us in the Old Testament should be a, a model for us in the preaching exercise, uh, that, that we, can, we can exemplify that rather than kind of use these stories from Scripture as, as ways to sort of beat up on the, the old saints, you know, as we sometimes are wont to do, uh, but instead realize we, we know these things about ancient Israel or the early church for that matter because they were honest enough to disclose them. And there's real benefits, spiritual, even physical, according to the psychological research, uh, even physical, psychosomatic, immunofunction, uh, real benefits to to being honest about these things. You know, the the drive to tell the truth in in the Old Testament, it does come out in the historical Psalms. I'm thinking about how, you know, when Israel reviews its history, presumably in sung form or worship form uh, in the Psalms, um, they, they bring out all their dirty laundry. You know, it's, these aren't, these aren't triumphalist histories that they tell in worship, which is fascinating. Right. I mean, they, or in the Pentateuch there, they admit what happened at, in, with the golden calf, you know, they admit that or about their most famous King, they admit what he did with Uriah and Bathsheba. Um, and he admits it too, when he's confronted by Nathan. So there's these really you know, fascinating stories. And it's just a kind of another way to, to look at things that we already know or should know um, and hopefully deploy them for uh, benefit of, of preachers and, and those who listen to them. That, that leads into something I wanted to talk about with regard to your, your book, Lies My Preacher Told Me. And you delineate in this book 10 mistruths about the Old Testament that are perpetuated by Christians, often preachers, but others as well. And and I wanted to talk for a moment about lies. So this gets at this honesty thread that you've got. Yeah, I got a thread going on right now. This is honesty you, kind you of do. moment in my yeah. in my career. I don't know what's next. Yeah. Some other virtue. What you, what, yeah. What do you have to confess, Brent? <laughs> um, so uh, you, you note the work of Harry Frankfurt, uh, yeah. who wrote a book um, on BS. I'll say BS. Yeah, that's that right. It's a family I program. Have to mark this ep- I have to mark the episode as explicit. If oh I don't. yeah, no, this is a, um, this is a family. On script program. Yeah, yeah, this is a family yeah. family podcast. Um, and he talked about those who lie and those who tell the truth. And then he's got a third category as well. And and so, what is that third category, and how is it relevant to your project? Yeah, his third cate- category, the the BSers, right? Uh, to to use that sanitized um, version, euphemistic, shall we say? Uh, quick clarification: that's not to be confused with the initials of my name, which are the same. Um, B-A. Yeah, let's include the middle initial, please, shall we? For yep. obvious reasons. But the BSers, according to Professor Frankfurt, who taught moral philosophy for many years at Princeton University, these folk don't really care about the truth. So there's there's the truth, and then there's liars who intentionally misrepresent the truth. And then there's this third category, the, the in-between, the BS, which doesn't care about the truth at all, according to uh, Frankfurt but adopts a kind of laissez-faire attitude towards it. And uh, he says that that's actually a greater threat to truth than liars, because liars actually know the truth. They're just misrepresenting it. But, but BSers, they don't care. They just, what they care about is how good they look. And so um, he thinks that's a really a, 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 a direct 
blow at the root of truth. Uh, liars know truth exists. They just don't say it. But the yeah, others don't care. They've got the reference point. Yeah, 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 that's right. So wow. I think that that's, uh, that sort of business about mistruth, um, BS, a kind of partial truth, that is more insidious than a, an outright lie. And and I, you know, I kind of apologize for the book a little bit to preachers. I, I've been blessed with a lot of good preachers in my own life. And uh, I actually dedicate the book to four great Sunday school teachers in my life that I experienced um, growing up. So I don't mean any disrespect, right? I mean, it's uh, but but rather uh, it's, it's I think it's mistruth. It's, it's not always intentional or malicious lying, but uh, partial truth, half truth, mistruth. Uh, and that's but that's even worse, perhaps, according to Frankfurt. Yeah, and we're not going to go through all 10 of your mistruths because I do want people to buy the book. Um, I, w- I want to jump to number three, that the Old Testament has been rendered permanently obsolete. And I, w- I want to read a qu- uh, verse from Hebrews, which addresses a new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied. And it says in Hebrews eight thirteen, by calling this new covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So I, c- I could see how a thin reading of Hebrews um, might give the impression that the Old Testament is pretty much obsolete. It's there as a relic, a record of the past of what we no longer are under as Christians, but but not much more than that. So where does this perspective on the Old Testament go wrong? You mean the the, the Hebrews eight thirteen by itself? So. Well, and, and more generally that the Old Testament's obsolete. Yeah. Well. You know, in the in the book, I talk at this in this chapter and and then in some others um, as well about about the interrelationship of some of these problems, of course. And in this particular mistruth, I do take a step back to a little bit of church history and and comment on Marcion, who uh, in some ways was the first most articulate representative of such an approach within the early church, and uh, and how the early church's response was um, rather powerful in in identifying all the problems that that came with Marcion's perspective because he he left the Old Testament behind uh, you know yeah and what was his perspective just to yeah his perspective in case people aren't familiar was basically that the Old Testament was obsolete uh, replaced um, by this this New Testament or but not the New Testament that we know an abbreviated um, and edited version of what he found palatable uh, for the Gospels that came down to the Gospel of Luke but severely edited so that uh, he took the the infancy narratives out they those sound very Old Testament ish if you if you've read you know Know, stories about Sarah and take those out, you know, take those out and, and, and not all the letters of Paul, but just some of them and edit those down to try to try to get as much Old Testament stuff out as possible. And that's what his his gospel was. And he was a great preacher, evidently, and encouraged Bible study among his, his people and his churches existed for centuries, according to some. And his ghost, I think, still lives and is quite, you know, vibrant uh, in Christian circles, uh, not only in North America, but beyond. And uh, so he's the first one to sort of say, yeah, this, this Old Testament stuff, eight, Hebrews 8.13 is right, and, and right in massive mode, not just here or there now and then, but massive mode. And, but, but his, his approach is different. You know, Hebrews, um, even when it's in its more uh, supersessionist kind of mode, if that's what it is, I mean, people would, would discuss that, no doubt. New Testament scholars would debate that. But even if we say it's, it has some elements there where it's in its kind of full-on supersessionist mode, even then it's constantly making its argument with reference to the Old Testament. You know, Jesus is a new Melchizedek, 
uh, a new high priest, a better high priest, but but notice the categories, right, that need to be to be assessed. It's Melchizedek, right? It's it's a high priest. So all this stuff is sort of presumed, even if in the valuation of Hebrews, um, the the new business with Jesus is superior. So I'm I'm transgressing into the New Testament, and surely half of your listeners are going, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So I better stop there. But I but I will say that I think. Um, one way to think about the Hebrews material is not only that it draws so heavily and extensively from the Old Testament, but also that there's more to the Bible than just Hebrews, or more to the Bible than just Hebrews 8.13. And so the whole council of Scripture needs to be assessed. And in the wisdom of the church, the Old Testament is a big part of that Scripture, and it contributes in massive ways to the life of faith. Yeah, and do you think the language of Old Testament, New Testament is inherently problematic? I've kind of gone back and forth on it. I, I know some people really do think that's kind of where the problem is. I, I kind of don't. Um, I think it might for some people who kind of have, you know, more uh, modern popular understandings of old and new. I mean, in antiquity, as you know, old was better. You know, new was to be looked at dubiously, uh, especially when it came to teachings and religion and so forth. Heresies were new things. You know, you didn't want a heresy because they were new. You wanted the old stuff. So I don't think old uh, and new are necessarily bad. And I do talk about this in the book a little bit, uh, partly because um, the first place to use New Testament is, of course, Jeremiah, right? So the New Testament is first about Israel, uh, which is, of course, Jeremiah is now in the Old Testament. So I don't really think it's the name, um, but I do think um, the name has a kind of, you know, has some baggage with it. So when we use the name, um, we have to be careful what else we say, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of Chris Seitz's idea that by old, we mean elder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking you that. Know, the, I think the, I quote him in the book, venerable. Okay, right? yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'll say one one quick story about this. My own professor, Patrick Miller, uh, now of blessed memory, I was one time, early in my teaching career, I remember, uh, and I was still dissertating, and he talked to me about my dissertation chapters, and he said, I notice you use Hebrew Bible, Brent, not Old Testament. And I said, yeah, you know, and I went on my little thing, you know, about Hebrew Bible, Hebrew Bible, Hebrew Bible is better. It's self-standing significance and all this and give it its own due and its own right. And yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, he looked at me and he said, well, yeah, I think that's all right. I think you should just believe all that, but you should still say Old Testament. (laughs) (laughs) And it sort of helped me realize that it wasn't the problem might not have been in the title, but in the other stuff around the title. Right. And and I think it it could reflect Um, an unease about reading the Old Testament as a Christian, too, um, because that's Christian language. And so, instead of being up front, we we might circumvent that, try to circumvent that. Yeah, um, which again, you can understand there's there's some good meaning to that or some good intentions, but also how it's not, you know, it it is Christian scripture now in the economy of the church and has to be received as such. So, to, to kind of pretend that it is not so is, I think, actually a nod to Marcion and, and is best avoided. Yeah. We don't want to nod at him. Don't nod at uh, him. So, <laughs> now, mistruths number four and five are that the, the Old Testament God is really mean and that the Old Testament God is hyper-violent. And uh, we probably don't need to rehash the accusation itself, but let's, let's talk about specific qualities. So, you, you discuss wrath and anger in the book. Um, is your, 
is your contention that God's really not that angry after all? Or what's your, what's your argument there? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I kind of start by trying to make the problem worse by saying that, you know, it's, it's not, this, this is not an issue of Old Testament versus New Testament, because uh, the Old Testament, God does have wrath and judgment, so does the New Testament God, quote-unquote, um, and, and so does Jesus, and, and uh, so does his cousin John the Baptist. You know, they, they, Jesus and John are, are gifted preachers of divine judgment and wrath. So, the problem is not a testamentary one, if we can put it that. And again, I think here, you know, a lot of my work, especially in this kind of mode, uh, more popular adult ed mode is is really a kind of re- reasoned explanation for the Old Testament, trying to help people understand it better and maybe get over some of their problems or issues with it, which are real. You know, I don't mean to be cavalier about them, um, but I think uh, the issue is not you know the wrath lives in the Old Testament and mercy in the New Testament. No, wrath is a kind of pervasive biblical problem. So first, you have to realize that that makes the problem worse. But then you have to kind of press into it and say, what is what is this wrath and judgment for or about? And here, you know, for many, many years now, I've been just uh, deeply influenced by Abraham Heschel's understanding of, of the wrath of God in his book, The Prophets, which I think is genius. Um, I think I'm remembering this right, that Heschel first wrote that book, at least the first version of it, as his doctoral dissertation when he was 26. So, you know, he has a future. He's got some, he's got some promise. He's showing some promise, Matt. He might, he might have a future in this field. But uh, his, his distinction between a God of wrath and the wrath of God is crucial as, as one being essentializing that God is kind of wrathful all the time as a part of, his, of God's being versus God having wrath instrumentally about something. And then the question is, what is, what is God's wrath about? And for Heschel and the prophets, it's... Uh, Wrath about sin and injustice. And when those things are addressed and rectified, redressed, God's wrath dissipates. And so, um, so I, I think you can't say, we definitely would want to say, it would be a lie to say God does not have wrath in Scripture. God has all kinds of wrath, Old Testament and New Testament. But what is the wrath about? What is it for? It's actually, in the end, towards therapeutic ends, towards the, um, you know, the, the recovery, the reconciliation, um, the benefit of humankind and human society. And in that sense, you know, what, what's not to like about the wrath of God in that, in that perspective? Yeah, and I like how you quoted from Isaiah 54, where God says, I was angry for a moment. And then you draw from the, the Talmud where they, where they specify exactly what a moment is in Hebrew. So, it's 0.06 seconds. That's right. God has wrath every day, but only for 0.06 seconds. I mean, so, you know, it's, it's enough to determine gold and silver in the Olympic Games, but it's pretty small in the course of a, of a 24-hour day. <laughs> but there's a, there's a uh, and I doubt they were being hyper-literal there, but they're making an important point about the relative weighting of divine wrath and mercy within the Old Testament itself, too. That's right. That's right. It's, it's a remarkable uh, passage in the Talmud, and all connected to it is this bit about, from uh, Isaiah 56, that mentions the house of my prayer, and so the rabbis talked about, well, what is this, my prayer, who's God praying to? God's talking, God says, my prayer, which means God is praying, who is God praying to? Of course, God is praying, according to the rabbis, to himself, and then they went on to specify the prayer, uh, which uh, I'm reading right now, it says, may it be my will that my mercy may suppress my anger and that my mercy may prevail over my other attributes so that I may deal with my children in the attribute of mercy. 
and on their behalf stop short of the limit of strict <laughs> justice. I mean, it's just beautiful, right? I mean, it's just, that is, that's fantastic. That's brilliant. It reminds me um, of a, another quote from the Talmud that J. Richard Milton mentions in an article about uh, God. He calls it God's loyal opposition about the role of prophets in opposing God and holding God to his character. And, and there's an account where on Sinai, uh, God pulls Moses aside and, and it says like he drew a cloak around him and said, if I ever become angry with you, here's the liturgy that you're supposed to read and I will turn from my anger and, and forgive you. And so it lays out the whole process that they can walk through. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And I think um, those and, things and, are obviously extra canonical, but they capture something. I think they capture right. something, right? That's seminal and true to the, to the biblical text as we have them. Right. Because God, God is angry and wrathful, but... Why does he bother telling people that he is becoming or growing angry, uh, if not to give them the means of averting it? That's right. That's the kind of the, the, the root of the repentance message. You know, even Amos, which seems so unremittingly judgmental, says, seek me, seek me and live. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a theme running through your book, or an emphasis, I should say, a doctrinal emphasis on the doctrine of inseparable operations. And, and this comes up at a couple points, um, the section on, on wrath and on the spiritual relevance and pra- practical relevance of the Old Testament. So, some people might not know what inseparable operations refers to, but I'd love for you to talk about that and why it's important to you as an Old Testament scholar. Yeah. So, you know, I am uh, a Christian Old Testament scholar. I'm ordained and whatnot. So, uh, part of my kind of working that out and figuring it out and also kind of explaining to other people what I do is, is trying to figure out the relationship of the Testaments and the, the place of the Old Testament in the, in the economy of salvation or the Christian economy, um, theological economy and so forth. Um, you know, I, I tell people, uh, you know, I, I went into Old Testament not because I failed the New Testament exam. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, <laughs> you know, I got a D minus and they said, look, have you considered the Old Testament? You know, it's a the future over there could be could be bright, might be lucrative, probably not. But hey, consider it because it's not strong right now in the New Testament. It was that wasn't it. You know, I, I went into the Old Testament for for more positive reasons than than coming in uh, low on a New Testament uh, exam. And I don't want to score low on the New Testament exam, metaphorically speaking, right? Um, but to think about the relationship of the Testaments is a is a I think a master problem, to quote, to quote some other people like Emil Kraling, a master problem in Christian theology to try to figure out the relationship of the Testaments. I don't presume to have it figured out, but one of the things that sort of has irked me, I mean, it's, it's been a part of my you know, upbringing in the church and my, my training and thinking about the theology of Scripture, is uh, what's irked me, what's, what's caused me problems and, and concerns and wonderings is, you know, Christological readings of the Old Testament. Um, and is that what Christians should be doing solely and all the rest? And um, what what inseparable operations has done is helped me think about a Trinitarian approach to Scripture, which I think is better in the final analysis than a Christological approach. Um, and I'm happy to note that people like Richard Hayes and Beverly Roberts Gaventa and others in the New Testament have also talked about theocentric you know, models in the New Testament, not just Christological ones. And I think that's very helpful uh, and, and in the same vein. But the way I've thought about it for, for many years now is to think about um, a Christological approach as insufficient 
um, as, as insufficiently Trinitarian, and that a Trinitarian approach and kind of the orthodox understanding of that, uh, where, where one member of the Trinity is all, all members are. They act inseparably, and this, this idea goes back all the way to Augustine, if not before that, but it's worked out in some of his epistles. Um, and so where one of the members act, the other members act as well. And what that did for me, and I wrote about this initially in an article um, in the Perspectives in Religious Studies, is that it, it helped me realize that a Christological approach to the Old Testament was not required uh, of me, um, at least not always, but it was, at, it was allowed, you know, it was allowed. It wasn't required, but it was, I didn't have to find Jesus under every, you know, rock or behind every heel to quote, you know, Genesis 3. Uh, in some ways, because Jesus was already there, the second member is already there wherever God is. Um, but, but so also is the Spirit. And so to inordinately fixate on the second member, to me, strike, start, starts making me a little bit worried that, that one of the members has become more important than the others. And that's, that can become a kind of modalism or, or its own kind of um, Trinitarian uh, problem. So inseparable operations helps me think about the, the Trinitarian, uh, you know, God at work all the time and therefore frees me from a kind of pressure to find Christ, where I don't think you really have to find Christ because the triune God is there. So why only the second member? I think it means well, but I think actually if not properly understood, it, it can actually go awry. Yeah, and it, I guess there's another kind of focus in the Old Testament, and that's that basically, with a few exceptions, you've got God the Father in the Old Testament— and then God the Son and the Spirit in the in the New Testament, um, <clears throat> which is another way of isolating one member of the Trinity for analysis in the Old Testament. Right, and so I mean that's where you know in the early church, every time God spoke, you know, whenever God spoke, like God spoke through the prophet, the law that's the logos, right? So that's that's the Son, um, and and then there's the Spirit, of course, who spoke through the prophets according to the Nicene Creed, or the Spirit of God, if, if, that's, if that's what the Ruach means uh, in various texts, uh, in Judges or Genesis 1 already, and, and all the rest. So I think there's places, you know, that we read as Christians on this side of the Christ event, and, and we're allowed to read them that way, I think. We're encouraged to read them that way. That's the way the New Testament authors read them in, in many ways, and the, certainly the early church did. But, but what I'm kind of resisting is a reduction, you know, a reduction of the Old Testament significance to its, its pointing toward or its contribution to, you know, this, this phrase, and it, you know, that everything in the Bible is a witness to Jesus Christ, uh, you know, I think it just goes too far. I think it goes too far and it's unnecessary in light of Orthodox Trinitarian doctrine, in my humble opinion. There's, there's also a, uh, a tendency, I guess, like, let's say you're reading the book of Leviticus and, and to try to rescue Leviticus by saying it's a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You, you can miss out on a lot of ways this, let's just ask what it tells us about God, the Trinitarian God. And, and we don't have to make that leap to justify our study of the book of Leviticus. You know, that we don't, we don't, um, doesn't require that, but it is warranted too. I mean, the New Testament goes there. So I think that's helpful. Yeah. So permitted, but maybe not always required. I, 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 that might be, you know, others might want to nuance that, I'm sure. But at least that's sort of a helpful way I've, I've thought about it. And, and to your Leviticus point, I don't think it's enough 
for the survival of the Old Testament in Christian circles to just say, well, you know, you need to read Leviticus in order to some to know something about the atonement or the passion narrative. You know, so it's just sort of background information. I mean, that just doesn't begin to do it justice. So I say at one point in the book, you know, if you're going to read the Old Testament, you got to get your money's worth. You know what I mean? Get, yeah, get, exactly. get your money's worth out of it. And, you know, the pointing to, to the Christ event you know, isn't, isn't enough. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's just, that's not the, that's not all that you can get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's be a little more Trinitarian. So you, you also talk about God's violence in the Old Testament and and this is a complex weave of challenges. So, you know, we don't have time to get into the Brent Strawn response to the problems of violence in the, in the Bible. But uh, I would be curious to hear maybe for instance, um, an example of how you've wrestled with violence and and made some headway in the Old Testament. Yeah, I I think that um, I first want to direct our listeners to your book, Matt, a genius book on violence in the Old Testament. Thanks for taking the bait. Well, and so really at this point, I'd like to turn it over to you for the balance. I yield my time <laughs> to the gentleman from Canada. <laughs> Um, no, th- so feel free, about, feel free to correct me. This is me. about you, Brent. Oh, well, this is this my third time on the show? If I, I, I think it is. Okay. Yeah. All right. To Shablatsum's four. Shablatsum's four. But I, again, I can't compete with that. I don't, I'm not worthy yeah. to open up his Nestle Elan 28, you know, if, if, <laughs> if, if he has one, I'm not sure. If, <laughs> I'm if, sure he, he knows where to get one. He, Amazon, perhaps. Amazon. Um, yep. So I think, you know, a couple of things come to mind. I mean, one thing for me is to, to think about the, um, the contexts of violence in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and I've been helped in thinking about the localization of it, if, if I can use that term, you know, in one of its more problematic uh, moments for many modern Christians in North America, it's the conquest. And I've been helped early on by uh, Dennis Olson's um, point that he makes in his book on Deuteronomy that that the conquest um, sort of narrative or metaphor, if you will, it it really isn't used as a substantive model of for Israel's faith thereafter. I mean, the Canaanites really disappear after Judges, and you you have you have a hard time finding mention of Canaanites. Not that they don't exist. In fact, there's one wandering around, right, talking to Jesus and Matthew, right, about her daughter. So the Canaanites are around, they're living in Jerusalem to this day. Joshua is full of these admissions, but they just become, they they don't, they don't, they're not a problem or issue like they were in the conquest account. And so the localization of that, what I, what I've come to think about that is, is that these are sort of strategies of containment that Scripture itself places on these moments of violence. They're still there. You can't really kind of, you can wish them away, but that's not going to work. I mean, they're still there. You have to think through them. But one of the ways it seems to me that the Bible thinks through them is by localizing them and containing them as much as possible. Another way that it's contained is is by the fact that the Bible begins, in in my opinion at least, in in nonviolent mode. You know, with the way God creates, not through chaos conf, not through uh, you know killing other gods or whatever. Not in Genesis one, at least. And then the uh, this image of God is then given over to the humans, or you know, to, to image as well. This benevolent blessing nonviolent creative deity such that nothing nobody can eat any animals not even the animals can eat animals you know everybody's vegetarian in the in the early days so i think the nonviolent beginning is crucial to note and then um 
then of course there's the violence that 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 comes along in the course of human history and also the scriptural narrative but i think uh, the 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 punctuation of nonviolence and not only the nonviolent beginning but the nonviolent future of the eschatological vision of the lion and the lamb laying down together you know so i think these are ways that i've i've thought about it but i'd, I'd love to hear your uh you know on script two minute response as well because uh it's it's a it's a huge issue right I think that's great. What I'm listening to, or what I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, is the way that you're wrestling with it, and 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 what I what I try to advocate with students is that there are ways of thinking through problems like this where you know at the outset you're not going to resolve it, and you're not going to solve it, but that doesn't mean that the quest itself is not worth it, and, and so so as you like approach something like wrath or violence or divine anger, what is it you're trying to advocate in terms of a disposition toward these kinds of problems um, that you want to kind of commend more broadly when it comes to thinking about the Old Testament? I don't know if that question makes sense, but that that's, that's what I'm curious about. No, it, it, it does make sense. And I think I love the word disposition. It's one I, I've used a lot in my teaching and my thinking about these things, because I think at the end of the day, that's what that's what enables us to read Scripture now, so many years later, in such different contexts with cell phones and all the rest, you know, just in a world that was unimaginable to the ancient Israelites or the early church, for that matter. You know, that that's what, what allows us to read these texts as words to us now, to transform us for the better. It's this disposition towards it. And I think the disposition has got to be fundamentally one that's... Um, it's trusting, I, I think. If I just use one word, uh, of course, lots has to be said, right? And again, I'm not trying to be cavalier about any of this, but but I think uh, you know I, the way I capture it in the book is by citing my my colleague here at, at Duke Divinity School, Ellen Davis, who who talks about listening to the Bible as an urgent speaking presence exercising salutary pressure on our lives. That's that's me slightly, I think, uh, paraphrasing her. Wait, go uh, back over that. I want to hear that again. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the way to think about the Bible in the best way, the Old Testament, particularly mm-hmm. she's talking about, is to, to think of it as an urgent speaking presence, exercising salutary pressure on our lives. And I've, I've, I've loved that quote from um, Ellen ever since I came across it. And I think that I think most Christians think that way about the New Testament. But for a lot of Christians, they don't think that way about the Old Testament for some reason. But if it works for one Testament, it should work for both. And so the fundamental disposition that I, I try to inculcate in my, my classes, that I try to model myself, is this this thing of listening to the text as an urgent speaking presence, exercising salutary pressure on my life. Salutary is crucial, right? Not negative, malevolent, um, pressure. That's, that's where you can start appealing to people like Augustine. You know, it, it's not a good interpretation if it doesn't result in the love of God and love of neighbor and, and all this sort of thing. So we have to appeal to a bunch of things and, and virtues and, and all this and, the, and, and, and resources in the tradition. But I think disposition is exactly the right word. And if that disposition is in place, the strangest, even the most off-putting text can actually become an urgent speaking presence exercising salutary pressure. I might not know what that's going to be on the front side of it, but but if I attend to it, if I listen to it, if I study it, if I contemplate it, uh, the disposition says something. Something's going to transpire in this in this act of communication and in this act of listening. 
this, I think that's that's what I'd say. I don't know if that fully speaks to where you're yeah, going. Yeah, that's great. It's a kind of like, what happens if we give the Bible the benefit of the doubt, even in these hard texts? Like, what what does that yield? And sometimes you could look at that and say, that that's you coming at it with a bias and you're, you're missing the horror. And, um, and there is the important place of honesty in the texts we're dealing with. But at the same time, sometimes that that assumption coming in or that disposition can yield good things that you wouldn't otherwise see. It can help you see things that are, are there and um, waiting to be discovered um, that you wouldn't see without that bias coming in. Yeah, I think that's right. And it, and it, and it may be that the word is a word on target, not for me in this particular moment, but for someone else in the larger world or, you know, in the stars where on script will soon be, beamed out into the universe. You know, the, the, the word might be a word on target for, for them. Maybe it's not for me in this particular moment, but I'm not the sole final arbiter of, of the text. Now, I, again, I think the, the, the thing to worry about is, you know, um, you know, if we're being in, you know, sufi- insufficiently attentive to a deeply problematic aspect or something. And, you know, so there are things that need to be addressed to wonder about and critique, but sometimes that can all be done within Scripture itself. And, and, and the point about strategies of containment is that Scripture itself, in, in my judgment, is, is exercising or, or showcasing concern about violence. And, it's, and in its own way, it's trying to, to handle that. And to be candid, I think when I look at the violence in our own society, I don't really see a whole lot of similar ways that we're trying to contain it. Right, right. I think I think biblical writers would look in horror at the way that we've treated the planet, for instance. Yeah, uh, um, right. I, I think, and and that's you know one of the ways that Genesis characterizes violence is it's something something that ruins creation. And that's right. look look at what we've done. I would like to say on that point, see Matt Lynch's new book, section one. Yes. All right. Um, so let's go to a speed round. Brent, speed you know the oh, drill. Um, could, could we? Could we call it quick fire round? Because yeah, yeah. Chris Tilling called that the quick fire round. In the oh, did he? Yeah. And it just sounds kind of like a superhero. So I was hoping I could call it. All right. It yeah. Let's go fire. for the quick fire round. Quick fire round. Okay. I'm ready. Here, Here we ready. go. Um, when was it that you first fell in love with the footnote? Oh. Where I, were you? What happened? I, it was San Diego, California, senior year of college. I wrote a uh, 160 page undergrad thesis project on the prophetic call narratives for Dr. Frank G. Carver of Blessed Memory. And I did indeed fall in love with the footnote at that point. And, and it's, it's, been, it's been strong ever since. We've been going strong ever since. And, and of that 160 pages, what percentage would you say was footnotes? Oh, that's a good question. It's been a while since I looked at it. I, you know, 25% maybe. I don't know. There was some, you know, they're double spaced though. Because, mm-hmm. you, you know, that was mm-hmm. before I had, you know, right, better right. software. You know. Where did you grow up? I grew up in San Diego, California. Okay. Um, so what are some of the natural physical markers from that region that you identify with, you know, that are like in your bones? Ah, uh, the ocean, of course. But but I never was a huge beach fan, but the ocean is beautiful to look at and particularly where you can walk by it and, and not necessarily have to be sandy. So uh, La Jolla Cove, um, for instance, or San Diego Harbor. Um, the harbor's beautiful with the sailboats um, all sort of docked out there. So there, Shelter Island, a little place in San Diego Harbor. 
I, I think of uh, if I, it, you know, I, I like contemporary jazz a lot. When I think when I listen to jazz, I, I think of San Diego Harbor. So um, I think that's probably it. The, the sunshine, of course, um, beautiful sun all the time in San Diego, and uh, no humidity, which is something I didn't realize at the time. But now, you know, now, Matt, I think to myself, why did I leave? Why did I leave? Yeah, that? spending all that time in Atlanta and now North Carolina. Yeah, in the South, I yeah. kind of wonder every summer who sinned. You know, what I mean, I'm kind mm-hmm. of wondering who sinned mm-hmm. that we. We have this humidity, but then comes fall. You know, I say, who's righteous? Who was righteous? Because now we have this beautiful fall and spring. <laughs> um, I, I want to ask you uh, about lessons learned from colleagues. So I'm going to go through a few of your Emory colleagues and just, I want you to try to identify something you learned from them. Um, so uh, Carol Newsom. Carol, uh, easily the smartest person in the room um, when you're with her, uh, just a, insatiable appetite for learning new things and applying them in fascinating ways to scripture, though uh, also interested in helping having scripture communicate back to those interesting things. So it wasn't, it was with Carol's never ambulance chasing, finding some theory and then applying it to the Bible. It was always, here's a theory that helps me understand the Bible. And look, the Bible actually helps me understand that theory better or, or revise that theory. Um, And so that's just one of many, many, many things I learned from Carol. Luke Timothy Johnson. Oh, just uh, another one of the smartest people in the room. When they're together, who knows, right? They, they have to have a grudge match or something. Uh, Luke, just a quick, quick mind. Um, he would come in in the morning singing the Psalms in Latin, you know, as he remembered them from his days in the monastery. Um, I think for Luke, for, for me, it was... Uh, his amazing combination of the most rigorous scholarship, you know, won the Grammar Award and Anchor Bible Commentaries, more than one New Testament library, and writing for the church at the same time. He had an unbelievable ability. He was a columnist for a while, writing a column every month for America, I think it was. It's just this ability to kind of operate in two realms simultaneously. It just was inspiring. Mm. Ian McFarlane. Ian was one my boss for a while as one of the academic deans and uh, also just super, super smart, right? I mean, there he was, the Regis professor uh, for a while there before he went back to Emory. Um, he was just a gregarious guy, a wonderful boss because he... He didn't take himself or his job or, or any of us uh, too seriously. We had wonderful banter back and forth. And I always appreciated his good humor uh, along with his, his great learning. And he loved to, uh, I'd say I, I learned this, Maximus the Confessor. That's one thing. I learned him. And, and whenever possible, say everything in Latin because uh, the students don't have any idea what you're talking about. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And one more, uh, Joel Lamont. Ah, Joel one of my oldest and best friends, uh, he was actually in, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, he was in the first class I ever taught, and then years later ended up as my colleague. Um, I don't even know where to begin with Joel. We're like, uh, we're like brothers uh, in the Old Testament, and uh, it was just a joy to work with him all those years. And it's a sorrow not to have his um, office down the hall from me. I, I think about Joel, that he's a a fantastic psalm scholar, among other things, and how he was always willing to share the psalms with me. You know, some people like to have a little part, and they they want it to be their part. Joel always 
shared the Psalms with me. And I think one other thing I'll say, which maybe won't be meaningful to many of your listeners, but it's meaningful to me and, and maybe to Joel if he hears it. They, I, I came after 18 years and after working with Joel for, I guess, 12 of those, I don't know, quite some time. I came, it left and came up here to Duke. And I've been thinking lately how uh, Joel never punished me for that departure. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that. And for him, we continue to be fastest of friends. So, Fantastic. Um, so you graduated from university in 92, is that right? That's right. Okay. So um, I, was, I was looking at events from 1992. Can you remember any like geopolitical events from 92? Well, 92, I remember watching the LA riots uh, yeah, live. Yeah. Um, in, right. And they were nearby, actually. And I had a, a, a school trip. I actually went through LA at that time. We were not too far from the riots. So that's, that's probably the main one. Do you know where you were when Rodney King was acquitted or when um, the, the police were acquitted? No, I don't remember where I was. Uh, yeah. I remember I was in choir. Yeah. And they, someone like came in the room and announced it. Um, that was um, a shock. Um, now you're at Duke now. Um, so 1992 NCAA basketball championship, Duke versus? Uh, I, UK? Nope. Uh, see, sorry. Yeah. I, after my, in my defense, I was not a Duke fan back then. In fact, I, okay. I lived in Kentucky for three years, uh, but, but that was my first job, but I didn't, I didn't like UK either growing up or Duke. I kind of didn't like either one. But then guess what? You live there, you become a fan. So I became a Wildcat so, fan. So I'll give you a hint. It's shaped like a mitt and it's by a lake called Lake Michigan. The state is shaped like a, uh, an oven mitt. Would it? It's, it's shaped like an oven? Mitt? Like an, an oven, oven mitt. mitt? Michigan. Yeah. 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 Duke versus Michigan. That's yeah, who, yeah. That's who it was. That's the one where Christian Leitner dribbled. It was like... Oh, wow. Right, is that right? Like two seconds? Might have been. But, but really, it was like 18 seconds in real life, but for some reason. Okay. I don't remember. <laughs> I had to look it up. I don't... I don't. Okay. Um, all right. Knock, knock. Who's there? Ida. Ida who? I think it's pronounced Idaho. That's right. That's where my wife's from. Idaho. I should have known that one. Okay. This is, I have two from my daughter. Okay. Right? She, she wanted to get these on the show. Okay. Um, what does NASA do when they throw a party? I don't, I, I, I don't know. I'm they plan it. They plan okay. it. Yes. yes. Uh, your, your daughter's a genius, clearly. Yes. And uh, now on, what's Lucy? the next one? I'm, um, I'm waiting for the next okay. one. Okay. What did the one toilet say to the other toilet when they were about to get married? Man, I, I don't know. I don't know this one either. You look flushed. Oh, yes. I was going to say, right. you know, you light um, my fire, you flush my, my bowl. I don't, you know, it didn't seem <laughs> quite the flushed. right <laughs> All right, here's some advice. Um, okay. You, you don't need a parachute to go skydiving. No? You need a parachute to go skydiving twice. True. True. Okay. I see that now. All right. A little family history. Uh, my grandfather had the heart of a lion. A little San Diego uh, reference here. And a lifetime ban from the zoo. Did he? So he, he had the heart of a lion. <laughs> and. <then laughs> <laughs> yeah, the San Diego Zoo is quite famous, and I and I wrote my dissertation on lions. But even then, I was slow. I was slow right. on the pickup. Uh, a little history: um, a Roman a Roman legionnaire walks into a bar, holds up two fingers, and says, "What?" This is a history, or this is a question. It was it's sort of history okay. uh, slash um, uh, two drinks for the road? I, you know, 
five beers, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what what's green and fuzzy, and if it fell out of a tree, it would kill you? Ooh. A pool table. Ah, that's true. Yeah, yeah they are fuzzy, aren't they? Yeah. All right, one, one more. Um, you know what they say about cliffhangers? <laughs> no, I don't. All right, back to the book. <laughs> that thus ends the, the quick fire. Yes. Okay. Uh, it was like, it wasn't quite literal biblical fire, but it was quick fire. We're running short on time, but I, I want to uh, get at a couple of other ones. Um, one is that the Old Testament isn't practically relevant. And, and practical is one of those terms. I have to admit that when, when someone says how practical the Bible is, I, I have a slight allergic reaction. And I'm not, I'm not even sure why. Um, and I want to read a quote from your book from pages, it spans 81 and 82. And, um, and you're discussing Bonhoeffer and his worries about making the New Testament relevant for today. And you say, for Bonhoeffer, the New Testament judges us today. The reverse improper order, the attempt to make the New Testament contemporary, was equivalent, in his opinion, to paganism. Why was that? And, and, you know, why would he associate making the Bible relevant with paganism? Isn't that something we want to do? Yeah, it's a fascinating essay. And I, the last line of that chapter is, ever since I read that essay, I've studiously avoided the word relevant whenever it comes to the Bible. It just sort of hit home, uh, because especially growing up, that was, a, that was a big word, you know, in church. Let's make these things relevant to people and all the rest. But Bonhoeffer says that in a lecture he gave at his underground seminary in Finkenwalde. And um, and what he's worried about is, is, you know, again, sort of something we touched on before, us as the final arbiter of what is or is not useful in the Bible. Um, that that puts us in the driver's seat, us as the kind of final uh, judge of what is authoritative or not, or inspired or not, or useful or not, or, uh, you know, salutary pressure or not. And uh, he thought that that was basically what the, the, the pagans did. Uh, they just basically wrote it all off, perhaps. Um, but he, he said that the difference at this point between pagans and, and the German Christians, quote-unquote, was very, very slight indeed. And so what he was wanting to do instead was to take our time, our period back, and let it be judged by the biblical text, not, not the other way around. It's very hard to do that, of course. I mean, so I, I think he's, he makes a serious uh, point, an important point, uh, a valid point. I, I assign this, this lecture often in my classes, and like I say, it still haunts me personally. Um, but it's not easy to do, right? Because again, we read from our place and on our modern context, and we can't escape that, nor should we. Uh, but at the same time, I think what he's doing at least is, is, is swinging the pendulum back and saying, look, you know, the, the, or the proper order needs to be this, uh, the priority needs to be this, the disposition needs to be this, not that other thing. That other thing is, is not far from, from the pagans or the German Christians who supported, uh, Hitler. Yeah, and I think it gets at how the Bible can be co-opted so easily to go back to your um, book on the Old Testament is dying and fit into some other linguistic superstructure um, because we, we pick out a bit that's relevant, but we're, what we're doing is taking that and bringing it into some larger structure, some larger superstructure that actually gives it sense then. So yeah, flipping flipping that around it is difficult. Um, 
do you have any particular strategies for doing that or questions that you like to ask that are different than is the old test? How is this relevant for us or how does this apply to my daily life? Or, you know, what, what alternative questions do you pursue? Yeah, I don't know if I have like just one question, but, but, you know, if I had to pick one, it would probably be like what you said earlier with reference to Leviticus. What does this text say about God? You know, um, or Brueggemann has a kind of boiled down uh, exegetical technique, which he's got down to three steps. And at one point when he's describing, he says that in his own uh, teaching practice, he used to ask students, you know, to, to think for a moment, try to think for a minute, what if this was the only text we had? Uh, it's not. But what if it was? What would it say about the theology uh, of 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 the author and 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 uh, what is the text theology its claims about God etc and I I think that's um, not a bad place to start because it focuses our attention sort of resolutely on the text um, and so that we're trying to kind of inter interact with that substance now it's still us that's interacting with it we're sort of as it were uh, you know messing up the experiment it's not not purely objective, but at least if we're sort of trying, I think as much as we can to pay attention to the to the material to something other than ourselves, to use language from Simone Weil, I think that's 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 the way to go. And so that doesn't make it, you know, a kind of utilitarian reading. That's that's what I don't like about practical stuff in the Bible. It's just utilitarian at the end of the day. And if it's so quick, you might actually miss how so much of Scripture is quite relevant, and even practically so, um, but but not necessarily perhaps in the way you thought. Uh, and so I, I think that kind of a, attention, um, listening posture, the disposition again, but, but maybe just asking, what does this text say about God and God's world? Right. Yeah, I, I find it particularly relevant when thinking about questions around violence in the Old Testament. So making it more of a two-way conversation. So yeah, we can bring our questions. What do we moderns do about these texts that we find challenging? You know, I think we should be able to ask that and and go to scripture and look. Um, but at the same time, maybe what are the questions that scripture, insofar as it addresses violence, would turn back on us? And what are the ways that it, it submits us to critique and is worried or wondering about the way that we live and act in the world, both individually and corporately. Yeah. In the book, I say something like, if we, we were able to personify the Bible and say, my, you're so violent, I suspect the Bible would say, who are you calling violent? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. Have you checked, are you, are you watching what you're watching on Netflix right lately? Yeah. Who are you calling yeah. violent? Yeah, that's good. Um, Brent, there's a, there's a lot more we could go into, but I, I want to uh, uh, bring it to a conclusion. And um, on behalf of the, the whole OnScript team, all of us co-hosts, uh, I want to congratulate you on your third interview. Uh, there's an open door policy with us, but as the proverb says, don't spend too much time in your neighbor's house, otherwise they'll get fed up with you. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I don't know... I, if that's this, a word for you, um, this could be. But, this could but be I, the I just last. no. But I don't think that'll happen with you. So, <laughs> well, for um, three sins of Damascus, even for four, man, I will not revoke the punishment. So, you know, I, I can see how maybe three could go into four using that. But, but we we don't want you to feel pressure. I don't want to angle for it. You know, I again, even even if it were to happen someday in the in the you know the benevolence of God, I, I still think that Prof Shalatsim should be probably your, your number one always for all time as as he is in in most of our hearts as he is yeah. in mine yeah brent thanks so much <laughs> thanks for having me on again matt it's always fun to yeah chat. 
You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate. 